Hello all, and the very warmest of welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, a regular jaunt into the world of true crime for my North Wales spare room, and where I seek out those tales of true crime that are unfamiliar, sometimes unbelievable or long forgotten, from the darkest recesses of the UK and Ireland. The I is Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. My true crime enthusiast cat, Peaksy, is here with me as he always is. He's never very far from me. And we're completed by yourselves, the wonderful enthusiasts that make the show simple as. It is amazing as always having you join us today, which I thank you kindly for. And I hope that as you have, then it's for a tale that finds you and yours all good, all safe and all well. So I'm catching up here with both my returning and new Patreon supporters of the show, with shout-outs here for new friends Georgia Rose, Kay Musk, David Wiley, Lynn Lockwood, Caleb Fessel, Kelly Smith, Ryan Hart, Whitney, Vicky, Amy Clausen, Stephanie Fortune, Kim Norton and Magpie, plus Sharon, Marilyn Ludwig and Kathleen Kendall, who have each opted to annually support the show. Apologies if I've mispronounced anybody's name there. Now your kind support means the world all. Thank you so much for it. And while stuff will be heading out to some of you shortly, it's all packed up right now as I'm waiting to move house. I hope you've all made the start on the plethora of bonus tales that being a Patreon supporter brings to you. If, like the aforementioned, you want some extra enthusiast, if you feel your life is just lacking that tiny bit of completion, then it's very easy to do, and it costs the best part of bugger all too. Simply head over to the Patreon site and seek out the show there, or you don't even need to do that, because there's a clickable link that takes you right to it in the episode show notes each time. Quicker than a person realises that the returning Big Brother series would be a pile of woke utter bollocks, You can't have TV now without some god-awful reality shit filled with freaks or scummers being on, can you? You can be hearing tales such as Murder Under Cover of War, Snippets of the Strange and Stupid, Angel from Hell, or the latest tale that's out, The Reservoir Dogs Murder, to name just some of what is on offer there. And there's a right mixed bag in there too. I often say that Patreon is my playground, if you like, where I like to often try and do something a bit different. The tale I've brought for the regular show this time around is an account of two terrible crimes that, had the system worked better at the time, shouldn't have happened, wouldn't have happened. The crimes that changed the lives of several people, both physically and emotionally, and the perpetrator responsible is one that will very likely end their days behind bars, as I'm sure you'll come to see is totally warranted. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events, including descriptions of a sexual nature and with injury detail, that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so please use discretion whilst you're listening in all. Bearing that in mind, Please join the true crime enthusiast as we head back to the late 1990s and down to the UK county of Hampshire for a tale I've entitled Manhunt. We begin this account by meeting through her own words a woman named Anne Markham who is today almost 70 years old and lives at an undisclosed address in the UK. Born in Croydon in South London 
She was educated at a high church school run by nuns and then a county school in Winchester where she did well, gaining 10 then O levels and 2 A levels. Deciding to enter the civil service, she'd moved swiftly up the ladder to by August 1990 to work in the Downing Street Cabinet Office as a member of staff for the then Minister for the Arts Tim Renton and Chief Secretary to the Treasury William Waldegrave. Anne recalled, It was a great time in my life. I had a very responsible job meeting senior civil servants and ministers and would often be sent along to champagne receptions to fly the flag because my boss was too busy to attend. They were very high-powered gatherings, but I was always trusted to represent government offices because I was happy and relaxed in the company of highly educated people. Now, two years before, in 1988, Anne had met then-19-year-old Brett Fiddler, a six-foot-six gymnasium worker and bodybuilder who was some 14 years her junior. They began a relationship, he soon moved into her end-of-terrace home in Southampton Road in the Hampshire town of Eastleigh, and they were married at a new forest registry office later the same year, Anne recalls. At first, we were very happy together. I suppose you could say he was my toy boy, but the age difference never mattered to us. Then Brett went to work for a fitness centre in Hull, and he later admitted to me that he had had an affair while he was away from home. From then on, things began to go wrong. I continued paying the mortgage on my own, as well as all the bills, and despite getting a lodger, I was finding it difficult to cope. The pressure of leaving home at 6.45am each day to be in Downing Street by 8.30am and not returning home until 8pm also took its toll on her. For Anne went off sick for several weeks and finally had to quit the job she loved in September 1993 through stress, explaining. I couldn't keep up the mortgage payments and I knew I would lose the house unless I earned some money. I was registered with several job agencies, but they told me all the jobs on their books I was too highly qualified for. Then I saw an advert in a local newspaper asking for girls to work for an escort agency. And that's how it all started. A bit of a sea change in careers there. Anne continued. I suppose a lot of women would be shocked that I was able to do it at all. But I was no vestal virgin. I've never believed that sex must always be linked to love. Sex can be recreational, and I never had any hang-ups about it. I was terrified when I went along for an interview, and took a friend with me for courage, but he waited outside. I was afraid they'd say, Yuck, you're too old. But they seemed to like me, and said they had several mature women on their books who were very successful. I thought you had to be drop-dead gorgeous, and I couldn't believe it, when they took me on the books. Advertising herself under the names Alex or Lisa, Anne was surprised at how easily she dealt with her new life as a call girl, charging £75 a time, with a third of it going to the agency, explaining. After the first time, it was easy. I met men from the whole spectrum of society. I had several barristers, solicitors and other professional people and I had one customer I'm convinced was a judge because he was always talking about the law. One of them was even a senior army officer who'd served in Northern Ireland and Bosnia. They often said, 
why are you doing this? And I would give them the same answer every time, for the money. I had several clients who had their own scenario. One would pretend to be a headmaster and I had to put on a St. Trinian style schoolgirl uniform with stockings and suspenders and a lot of thigh showing. I had to knock on his door and say I'd been a naughty girl, which would end up with him merely smacking my bottom. One guy in his early 20s wanted to be caned on his backside because he'd been caned as a child, but I wasn't very enthusiastic at it and I used to cane him gently. Another never had sex, but just liked to video me in sexy underwear and high heels. I occasionally used to tie clients to a bed with a silk scarf because they wanted to be dominated, but there was nothing very heavily kinky, just a tiny bit of corporal punishment. Now, you can't keep something like this a secret from your other half, especially as Anne had decided on where she would work from up front, saying, It was a scary thing to do, but I decided from the start that I would only entertain men in my own home. I wouldn't go out anywhere else because I thought it was too dangerous. I didn't want to end up being trussed up and helpless. It's ironic when you think what eventually happened to me. Now Brett had found out about this, noticing the sex aids, outfits and restraints that kept popping up and had begrudgingly accepted it was Anne's business. It was keeping them from losing the house, after all, the gym not doing so well. And so they came to an understanding where a second telephone line had been installed at their modest home, just for her bookings. He would also always telephone ahead before returning home to save awkwardness on barging in on Anne and a client. And for a while, it was a system that worked. Anne continued, I always asked for the money up front and I never turned my back on a client. I even made them go up the stairs in front of me. I used to keep a boot knife, a short bladed dagger, under the bed and I knew where to stick it if I ever had to, under the ribs where it can disable or kill. I was so cautious that when a client arrived at the front door, I would look at him through the glass first and if he was too tall or burly, I would pretend I wasn't in, and he would go away. By December 1995, one of Anne's adverts had read, Alex, Southampton, tall, sophisticated, sensual, blonde lady, classy and well-groomed, offers relaxed, unhurried escort and massage in discreet surroundings. Naughty boys will be dealt with. This was to be Anne's final advert. Now I should explain here that Anne was to claim later that some weeks before Christmas 1995, a Christmas that she has little memory of, as I shall come to explain, Anne had decided to call time on her life as an escort, saying, I'd given up seeing clients several weeks earlier, and I have no recollection of deciding to go back into business or receiving anyone that day. Apparently. Brett and I spent Christmas Day and Boxing Day in the normal way, although I have no memory of it. I'd put up decorations, dressed a Christmas tree, and even cooked a turkey. Strangely, I was later found to have bruises on my body and the mark of a hypodermic needle injection, which I am told predated the attack, but I cannot explain them. 
I know I phoned my father that morning and made a second call to my mother that afternoon to discuss going to see them at their home near Salisbury. During the call to my mother, I was standing in the hall wearing ordinary clothing and holding the phone facing the front door. Suddenly, there were three knocks and my mother heard it on the other end of the phone. I told her, I have to go because there's someone at the front door. I looked up to see a man's face in full profile. Strangely, I thought it was my husband. And there, my memory ends. The call to Anne's mother was later timed at 2.51pm on the afternoon of Wednesday the 27th of December 1995. At about 5.50pm that evening, Brett Fiddler returned home from work and, unusually, found the house in darkness and the front door locked. Heading down the side of the house, he noticed the back kitchen door wide open and pushing it ajar and turning on the light, was confronted with a disturbing and terrifying sight. Lying on the kitchen floor, slumped against the tumble dryer, he saw the body of a woman, clothed only in a red basque and a black matador-type jacket. I say woman, not Anne, for so badly had she been battered, that Brett could only recognise her as a human being, not his wife. He described later that her head looked like an egg that someone had tried to take the top off. Anne lay in what was described as a lake of blood, a large pool of vomit, alcohol and a shower of broken glass. It was later determined that her attacker had smashed her over the head with three different wine and spirit bottles, knocking her senseless to the floor. Also on the kitchen floor, there was the base of an iron with its case and handle missing, which Anne had been struck so hard around the head with that it had broken. Now, any of these wounds would, I'm sure, render anyone almost unrecognisable. But what had most likely done so is that Anne's head had been rammed with such force into the toughened plate glass of the kitchen oven door that it had gone straight through it, shattering it to pieces. She'd also then had her neck slashed with a steak knife. Now, there is a Crime Watch file episode concerning the tale that I'm bringing here, a link to which is in the episode show notes. And whilst it is in effect a dramatisation, it does contain some of the original police photographs and crime scene footage. Have a look and try to imagine what carnage I'm describing here. She had been lying there for nearly three hours with the back door open on the bitterly cold day of December the 27th, 1995, and was barely clinging to life. Brett later recalled the moment when he found his wife in the blood-spattered kitchen, saying, There was no physical sign of anything apart from red. She had a wide gash, like a second mouth, in her neck. I had to kneel right beside her and look in her face to see who it was, and even then, it didn't really look like her at all. I couldn't see any head injuries at all, because her hair was just too matted with blood. I felt shock and disbelief. I couldn't comprehend how I felt. Actually finding that it was her, I felt sick, very sick. It was horrible. 
You come to terms with it, but I will never get over it. I still wake up sweating every night seeing her. Rushed immediately to Southampton General Hospital, with doctors convinced she wouldn't make it through the night. Anne needed a blood transfusion of nine pints and required a number of staples to piece her shattered skull back together. Such a complex operation was it that she even had to have part of her brain removed. She was to spend some two weeks in intensive care once she was stabilised. And bizarrely, one of the stranger aspects of this tale is that reportedly, when she was close to death in hospital, a man was seen fiddling with life-saving tubes linked to her body. He was subsequently ordered out of the hospital, told never to return, and was even interviewed by police, though never was charged. Now, frustratingly, there is no further information available concerning the incident either. And this occurred before she was moved to spend several more weeks in the Victoria House Rehabilitation Centre in Farnborough, making a slow recovery. And only one of sorts, for the attack was to leave Anne with life-changing injuries. Had she been on her back instead of slumped on her side following the attack, doctors were convinced that she would have died. Operation Taipin, the hunt for Anne's attempted murderer and led by then Detective Chief Inspector Paul Stickler, was immediately launched and was to provide results almost immediately. As a neighbour of Anne Fiddler, Alan O'Neill, told of how he saw a mystery man, believed to be Anne's attacker, casing the house on Boxing Day. He said, Now that I've heard the news, and with a bit of hindsight, it all makes sense. It explains some of the strange man we've seen hanging around the house over the past few months. My mother-in-law left our house on Boxing Day, and told us she'd seen a car crawling along the curb before it stopped in front of Mrs Fiddler's home. The driver then did a U-turn and parked his car in a car park directly opposite the house. What could have been the same man, described as about six feet tall and muscular, was seen running through back gardens near Anne's home on the afternoon she was attacked shortly before 3.30pm, shedding an item of clothing as he did. Though this sounded like him, Brett was quickly ruled out of the attack after being questioned at length by police and working backwards from the telephone call to the emergency services at 5.50pm and Anne's phone call to her mother shortly before 3pm interrupted by a knock at her door, determined that she'd been attacked soon after 3pm. For all her care, detectives believed that her attacker Enticed by Anne's adverts offering discreet massage and promising to deal with naughty boys that led him to her home, had singled her out and attacked her, possibly as she turned to make coffee for them both, as two cups still stood empty on the kitchen unit when police arrived. With forward thinking, the bin collections in the area on the following day were halted, and a search of bins soon yielded from an industrial bin at Eastleigh College only a few hundred yards away from the crime scene, a carrier bag containing the broken casing of the iron that had been used to strike Anne, alongside the necks of three broken bottles, matching the glass that covered the kitchen floor of Anne's home. 
Both the iron casing and the neck of a bottle of Harvey's Bristol Cream Sherry were found to have blood-stained palm and fingerprints on them. Also near to the scene were discovered a discarded pair of panties, ripped either side, that were later found conclusively to belong to Anne and to be blood-stained, though not with her blood. It was later to transpire that Anne's attacker had injured himself whilst carrying out his vicious onslaught and had removed these to stem the flow of blood from his cut hand. But, in spite of these promising sounding bits of evidence, police were to be frustrated, because the palm and fingerprints from the bottleneck and the iron casing did not match any that Hampshire police had on file. Aside from the two sightings of a man seen near Anne's house the day before, and likely running away from the same afternoon, that was it there was a poor public response to police appeals following the attack. Hampshire police combated this by eight days after the attack, releasing a photo of Anne Fiddler's horrific injuries to the media, hoping that it would provoke a member of the public into coming forwards and giving information about the attack that they may have withheld. Detective Chief Inspector Stickler told the press, we have decided to take the unusual step of releasing this photo. It is possible the attacker is being shielded. Whoever did it must have been bloodstained, and it is possible someone out there knows who he is. We hope that they will look at this picture and decide that this person does not need to be shielded. Again, the photographs of Anne's injuries feature in the Crime Watch file doc, and they're quite graphic. Have a watch and you'll understand from seeing them the urgency police felt in catching whoever was responsible. In a screening programme that was described as the first of its kind in Hampshire, DNA samples were taken from several local males, as well as members of Anne's husband's gym, a blooding like that had caught Colin Pitchfork almost a decade before, to eliminate both men who knew her and her known clients. But as the weeks passed, Nothing was identified, with police growing all the more uncomfortable that Anne's attacker could strike again, and this time fatally. Six weeks after Anne's attempted murder, on the 7th of February 1996, and some 20 miles away from Eastleigh in Port Solent near Portsmouth, 15-year-old Katie Hoskins returned home from school and unusually couldn't get into the house she lived in with her younger brother David and her mother, 43-year-old accountant Glenda, as the door was locked and the mortise lock had been placed on. The Senan Place house overlooked the marina there, just a few miles down the coastline from where the 1980s BBC series Howard's Way was filmed, incidentally which someone posted in the group used to terrify them for some bizarre reason and where the likes of Richard Branson, Jim Davidson and Paul Daniels all apparently had boats berthed, and where self-employed accountant Glenda would habitually always be in at to greet her children returning home from school. Noticing her mother's car missing, a white Ford Cabriolet, registration number M487APO, and thinking she'd merely nipped out on an errand, Katie sat on the doorstep and waited. After she'd been waiting in the cold for several minutes, a man turned up who had a scheduled appointment with Glenda that afternoon, 
and let the freezing girl wait in his car out of the cold for Glenda to return. Eventually, after about half an hour, he drove her to a phone box from where she called her dad Tony, who was separated from Glenda, although the two remained close. He came to collect her, having picked up a younger brother David from school on the way. For the rest of that evening, alongside repeatedly trying Glenda's mobile phone, they called everyone in creation who knew her from Tony's home in Stubbington, in Fairham, but to no avail, and just before midnight, convinced that this was so out of character for Glenda that something must be seriously wrong, reported Glenda as a missing person at Fairham Police Station. Police Constable Helen Wheeler was the officer who first dealt with their report, and was to go on to become a close friend of the family. By midnight, police had gone around to the house in Port Solent and, with Tony not having a key, had forced entry through the back downstairs window of David's bedroom. Once the door had been unlocked by the officer and the family let in, the first thing that was noticed was that there was a pile of Glenda's clothes in the downstairs hallway, strewn around and dishevelled, as though they'd been removed there. Heading upstairs, David was back down to report that a stack of CDs were missing from the property, as well as a television and a video recorder, whilst Katie reported that there was a broken soap dish lying on the bathroom floor, the carpet of which was soaked through. Police themselves made a cursory search of the entire house, even pulling down the loft ladder and examining up there by torchlight, but of Glenda, there was no sign. By 1am, Tony, David and the police officers at the scene were sat downstairs wondering what their next action would be when there was an ear-splitting scream from Katie who was upstairs. Tony described later. I'll never forget that scream. The police and myself had searched the loft and found nothing so when Katie asked if she could do something I told her to look up there thinking that would be perfectly safe. When we heard her piercing scream I ran up the ladder and got her out. She was hysterical and I still didn't know what was wrong because I couldn't find anything. I kept shouting down to Katie, What is it? What have you seen? Then I saw this piece of carpet and I opened it up and saw a pair of legs. At first, I thought it was a tailor's dummy. The loft was vast and poorly lit but Katie knew where the light switch to it was and had flicked it on. As she did so, she'd almost immediately noticed a strand of blonde hair poking out from under a piece of carpet. Just 12 days shy of her 16th birthday, Katie had found the naked body of her mother, her hair still bedraggled and damp, wrapped in a roll of carpet hidden in the loft. How must something like that be? By 8am, a murder investigation led by Detective Superintendent David Hanna had been launched from Havant Police Station and as house-to-house -house inquiries got underway, specialist search teams were brought in to scour the area. Divers searched the water at the nearby marina looking for a possible murder weapon. A team of 35 detectives examined the murdered woman's background whilst awaiting the results of a post-mortem examination which was carried out by Dr. Roger Ainsworth. 
He was to later that day report that Glenda had died from asphyxia, and although the signs were not typical, the findings were consistent with drowning, as she was found to have water in her lungs. There were some 31 bruises found to her body, including to her back and the back of her shoulders, her ankles, the back of her head, and either side of the mouth and nose, consistent with someone having forcefully held her underwater, likely in her own bath, before discarding it in the loft. An absolutely horrific way to die. She had also been sexually assaulted by a killer police believed was waiting when she returned from taking her youngest children to school that morning. If that wasn't horrific enough, a scene of crime officers discovered during the examination of the house, on Glenda's answering machine on the home telephone were two separate messages from a male caller. Both were short, so short that it would almost be impossible to comprehend anyone leaving them, yet would have chilled anyone listening to the bone, especially if you'd received them on your own phone. The first said simply, A woman will die in Portsmouth today. Whilst the later one, and it's not reported what time lapse there was between them, said simply, A woman has been murdered today. Police were certain that the voice was that of Glenda's killer, adding, Anybody getting messages like that would have been terrified. Now that would frighten you, wouldn't it? Police believed that it was meant to, out of contempt. There was no sign of any forced entry to the house, so police believed it likely that Glenda knew her killer, and this was a very personal motive for her murder. It seemed meant to degrade, and the answer phone messages, who does that? But who? Glenda's family, although shell-shocked as you can imagine, were as helpful as they possibly could be, but at first drew a blank. This was a successful, bubbly and popular attractive woman who doted on her children and was liked by all who knew her, with tons of friends, absolutely everything going for her. Who could harm someone like that? And then Katie and David both volunteered the name Vic, an old boyfriend of Glenda's who had spent the previous Christmas day with them, though they thought it unlikely. They didn't know his surname at all, or where he lived, having never been around to his home, but they did volunteer that his phone number and address would be in their mother's address book, which had been found upstairs. They also furthered separately that neither of them liked him at all. There was just something about him. There was only one Vic in the address book when checked, a 46-year-old named Victor Farrant, who lived at number 209 in the north end of London Road in Portsmouth. And so, around there, detectives went to question him, just another person to be ruled out of the inquiry. When they got there, however, there was no sign of Farrant, and so... Still acting upon it being a routine line of inquiry alongside several others, ordered a check to see if Farrant had a criminal record. What they found elevated Victor Farrant straight to the top of the person of interest list, because Victor Farrant did indeed have one, having come to Cambridgeshire Police attention more than two decades before for a series of escalating offences, and then Sussex Police eight years before 
resulting in his imprisonment for a vicious rape. He'd been released from custody three months to the day before Glenda's murder. So, how does a successful, attractive accountant find herself tied to a savage rapist? It was to transpire later that Farrant and Glenda had been in a relationship since August 1993, but had broken up at least once during that time, and had first met at Joanna's nightclub in Portsmouth, when he was on weekend leave from Little Hay Prison in Cambridgeshire. Ever charming, overwhelmingly so, he at first told Glenda that he was a businessman who worked in Belgium throughout the week, later admitting that he was in prison but saying it was for assault, portraying himself as a hero he told her was convicted of assaulting a man while breaking up a row with a woman. Glenda, who who was described by friends as being naive, had been completely overwhelmed by Farrant's charm and believed him. What she did not know was that he was actually serving a 12-year sentence for rape. Now at first, they shared a powerful lust and the highly sexualized letters that Glenda wrote to him in prison fanned the flames for Farrant's weekends out, though this weekend leave was eventually stopped because he once returned back to prison late. However, the couple carried on their relationship with Glenda visiting him behind bars, and according to an extract from one of these letters, even managed to have sex whilst there, with Glenda writing, It was amazing making love knowing that the warders were just outside and could have walked in on us at any moment. Farrant, for his part, boasted to other prisoners that the two of them had indeed had sex when she'd visited the prison, though there was nothing to support the claim. By the time he'd been moved to Albany Prison on the Isle of Wight, the two were writing regularly, and Glenda expressed her love for him, saying, You are a romantic person, and romantic people make better lovers. In another letter, she said, I know I am a brazen, shameless hussy, but you are making me worse than Madonna. In August of 1994, the Dorset Probation Service officer dealing with Farrant, Judith Hartsilver, whom Farrant loathed, became so concerned over this relationship with Glenda, I'll come on to explain why these fears were so great shortly, that she arranged for his phone calls to be monitored, to have his weekend leave privilege removed, and actually told Glenda that he was a convicted rapist. She distanced herself from him as a result of this, but it wasn't long before he'd convinced her that although he was serving a sentence for rape, he had been wrongfully convicted and was an innocent man. Farrant was released from his prison sentence on the 7th of November 1995, and Glenda's friend, Karen Mitchell, described how Glenda met Farrant again before Christmas of that year, saying, Five of us, all women, were in the Glasshouse nightclub in Southsea, having a laugh and a good time. One minute Glenda was talking to me, and the next, Victor was standing nearer, and they started talking. He was extremely handsome, very clean-looking, and was wearing lovely clothes. He seemed to be an absolutely charming man, a real gentleman. Glenda had a drink with him, and came back with us at the end of the night. She told us she already knew him from years back, 
but that he'd been working in Belgium for the last two years. She'd actually been visiting him in Albany Prison on the Isle of Wight. Now after Farrant's release, Glenda was clearly trying to tail the relationship with him off for good, but you just can't tell some people, can you? He was on the phone all the time to her, always trying to be around there or to be with her, almost borderline stalking her, which weighed heavily on Glenda. Saying that, she relented when he asked her about spending Christmas Day with her, and a friend who spent Christmas Day with the Hoskins, including Farrant, said, He insisted he had nowhere else to go, and Glenda felt sorry for him, but they hardly said two words to each other, and you could tell she didn't want him there. I think Glenda's problem was that she was gullible. She was one of those people who believed everything everybody said to her. She felt, why should they lie? He kept saying, give me one last chance, one last chance. I think the reason she went with him was because she felt sorry for him. She was a lovely woman, and the trouble is, she believed everybody and would give everybody a chance. Another friend recalled visiting Glenda shortly before her death, and on that day, Farrant phoned twice. She seemed adamant she didn't want to see him, and she didn't want him to keep phoning her. Glenda was trying to end the relationship a couple of weeks ago, because Farrant was becoming very possessive. He didn't like her going out with all the girls, and would get very jealous. He just would not accept the fact that she wanted to end it. He wasn't having any of it. He became violent and threatening towards her. In fact, the weekend before Glenda had been killed, she'd met another man, Andrew Rickson, at a local nightclub, and they'd hit it off. It's possible, but by no means confirmed, that Farrant had seen them together there too. Two days before a murder, Farrant had been spotted near her home. Was it possible that he was waiting for a chance to get into the house, thinking, if I can't have you, then no one else will? Meanwhile, 20 miles away in Eastleigh, Detective Chief Inspector Stickler and his team on Operation Taipin had received the bulletin concerning the murder of Glenda Hoskins and immediately wondered if there was a connection. Two violent attacks, both sexually motivated, Similar victimology in two 40-something attractive blonde women in the same county just 20 miles apart and liaised with a murder investigation team to compare the forensics they had from Anne's attempted murder with the name suggested in Glenda's killing, Victor Farrant. They managed to get a set of Farrant's finger and palm prints faxed through to the incident room from Cambridgeshire Police and one detective who had worked on the case for the previous six weeks described later that as soon as those palm prints came through the fax machine, one glimpse was enough to know that this was their attacker, so long had he studied the contours and whirls of the then unidentified print. The palm prints on the weapons used to try and murder Anne Fiddler belonged to Victor Farrant. As a result, both inquiries joined forces under the command of Detective Superintendent Hannah and a manhunt was launched for Victor Farrant, but police had missed him. 
It transpired that he'd been seen twice on the afternoon of the murder in Brighton and later in Portsmouth, seen to have been scratched on his face. Farrant had four sisters who lived in the Portsmouth area, but they'd not heard from him, and an all-ports warning was issued for Farrant, for it was believed that he may have taken Glenda's car and then fled abroad by a ferry from Portsmouth, just four miles from the murder scene. A track of Glenda's mobile phone records, her phone was missing, had showed that it had been used to call several numbers up to the evening of the murder, long after she'd been killed, with calls made to a number in Ashford in Kent and several to Brussels in Belgium. And so using Ashford as a starting point, officers began scrutinising CCTV there. Sure enough, Farrant was discovered that evening to have been at Ashford train station where he was filmed at 7.15pm on security camera 51 there, having met a friend whom he sure enough left Glenda's car with. The car was later found parked in a side street in Plaistow in East London, and the friend, who was described as a property broker named Peter Madders, was later charged with supplying Farrant a false passport in the name of Charles Kelly. From catching a train in Ashford, Farrant was next sighted on CCTV in Ramsgate at 9.39pm where Charles Kelly had bought a one-way ferry ticket to Ostend. The manhunt was on and it was to be a manhunt that saw details of Farrant circulated to no less than 177 countries and a draft letter by Detective Superintendent Hannah going to 28 European capitals and 148 police services. Farrant was described as six feet tall and powerfully built, a smooth-talking ladies' man who could assume different accents, including Irish and a cultured English upper-class tone, who was known to have connections to Belgium and France, and who used a variety of aliases, including Victor Kelly and Charles Kelly. What was expressed most was that Farrant was considered extremely dangerous and should not be approached by members of the public. At one point, police considered Farrant so dangerous that they placed protection on several people in the UK, including Glenda's family, a couple of her friends, his own sisters, his ex-wife, and even moved Anne to a secret location. Knowing of his penchant for escort girls, they also took the step of placing notices in newspapers alongside advertisements for escorts across Europe, which read, alongside Victor Farrant's picture, If this man calls on you, make your excuses and dial 999. They were also reportedly so fearful of his ability to worm his way into women's affections that they asked neighbours to check on women in their 40s who were living alone. So, who is this person that such warnings were needed? Victor Peter Anthony Farrant was born in Londonderry in Northern Ireland on the 18th of November 1949, the son of an army major and having four sisters. As a forces child, Farrant spent some time living abroad and also attended boarding school in Bexhill in Sussex for a time before the Farrant family settled in Cambridge from 1969. He had a few brushes with the law here, gaining convictions for theft, and at age 20, indecent assault of a teenage girl. 
By the early 1970s, Farrant had become estranged from his family and had headed over to Europe, having a nomadic existence working on building sites or in bars throughout France, Spain, the Netherlands and Belgium, becoming fluent in French and Flemish as a result. It was Brussels where he spent the majority of the 1970s and early 80s, working in various pubs and bars including Your Father's Moustache, The Double Diamond and The Red Lion. And it was here where Farrant met the woman who would go on to become his wife, Jasmine Vickery. The couple returned to the UK in 1983 and moved to Marine Square in the Brighton area of Kemp Town, Marion later that year. In January of the following year, Farrant was awarded £50 and was described by the Brighton Evening Argus as a shy hero after he chased an armed thief outside the sandwich shop where he worked, catching the spanner-wielding thief who had snatched a pensioner's purse as he tried to board a bus, a crime for which the thief was later jailed. Farrant and Jasmine divorced in 1985 after just two years of marriage following which Farrant spent considerable time honing his ability to charm women in a succession of nightclubs around the Brighton area, having considerable success with his sharp dressing and suave manner. One such person he charmed was a 31-year-old divorcee named Jennifer Weston, whom Farrant met at the Midnight Blues nightclub under Brighton Seafront Grand Hotel. She said later, I was impressed with him. He told me he was a pilot with Virgin called Ian. It was one of Farrant's most practiced chat-up lines. Jennifer agreed to go for a meal with him as a result, but he got her inside his flat in Hove by pretending he'd forgotten his credit cards and needed to collect them. Jennifer continued. As I walked in, he grabbed me around the throat from behind. He dragged me inside the flat. It was sheer terror. I was absolutely petrified and thought he was going to kill me. He said nothing, handcuffed me and then dumped me on the bed. He ripped my clothes off and tried to rape me, but he couldn't. She got out of one of the cuffs and struck him, so he then responded by beating her so badly he had knocked her unconscious and then repeatedly raped her over the course of the night. At one point during the rape, he asked her to grab a wine bottle to get her fingerprints on it, with a possible defence in mind. She finally got free after smashing her cupped hand over his head and drawing blood, recalling, I find it difficult to remember events because Farrant beat me up so badly that my memory is patchy, but I thought, that's a nice blow. If I die now, it won't be in vain because I've got my own back on him a little. Farrant was arrested and charged with this attack and an attack on another woman the same year, though there are sketchy details about that. The following year, he was sentenced to 11 years imprisonment for the attack on Jennifer, as well as having a year's sentence for grievous bodily harm on the other unnamed woman. He had attacked her with a bread knife, though he was cleared of raping her. The presiding judge at his trial told Farrant as he sentenced him, you are an appalling, vicious rapist. Yet, by just five years into his sentence, Farrant's charm and plausibility had convinced prison officials to downgrade his prisoner category 
so that he was allowed out for weekend leave, where of course he had first met Galenda. Despite Farrant's refusal to address his crime and to seek any kind of rehabilitation. Now, who knows why, but that blew up in the faces, didn't it? And by the time he'd served less than seven years of this sentence for such an appalling attack, he'd been released to live in a Portsmouth bedsit. Three months later, he had killed one woman, almost killed another, and was now on the loose in Europe. On the evening Glenda was murdered, Farrant had left the country from Ramsgate, having first travelled across the south of England in Glenda's car, selling the stolen CDs to a woman in Portsmouth, and the TV and video to a man in Sussex. And the morning after the murder, he arrived in Uckel in Brussels, where he stayed until the 21st of February with a female friend called Dorrit Pedersen, a translator for the Council of Ministers in Brussels. When police discovered he'd been in Brussels, by that time Farrant had taken Dorrit's car, a white Citroen AX with a damaged rear with a number plate beginning EUR, and had disappeared. Now, despite saturated poster and TV appeals throughout the UK and Europe, and even an appeal on Crime Watch UK in April 1996, the same month that Glenda's funeral was held at St Peter's Church in Southsea, the trail for Farrant went cold as the months progressed. Sightings of him were reported across Belgium, in the French resort of Set, and on the 4th of July, following several reported sightings of him there, police even flew to Spain, but to no avail. But a day prior to this, a Canadian backpacker who'd been travelling around Europe and had just arrived in Brighton, saw a news report that Farrant might be in Spain and recognised him as Charles Kelly, whom he'd met only a short time before whilst working in a hostel in Nice, which he was convinced of. After reporting this to police, and them liaising with French police, at 5.30pm on the 5th of July 1996, Charles Kelly was arrested by armed officers as he supped a pint at a bar in Nice. He offered no trouble at all, and was calm and relaxed as he was bundled into a police car. Farrant had been found. It transpired that he'd confirmed his reputation as a ladies' man during his time in Nice on the French Riviera, as he apparently spent his evenings chatting up young women and flirting with a string of international travellers whilst managing the Pado Turismi hostel. A fellow worker at the hostel said, he was always drinking and loved to be in the company of beautiful women. I went out with him once with three girls, a Dane, an American and an Australian. We had a real party and he drank non-stop. Staff and guests at the hostel spoke of Farrant's friendly and helpful approach, how he claimed that he was a child psychologist and that he came to France to get over the deaths of his family after they'd been killed in a car crash and was stunned when shown a copy of the newspaper which broke the news of his arrest, with the owner of the hostel saying, I am stupefied. I cannot understand that he is accused of killing someone. He is a gentleman and was all the time ready to give good service. Farrant had even regularly warned women not to go out alone at night, 
because it was not safe, which is pretty much like a shark warning you about crocodiles. Due to a lengthy extradition process, which Hampshire police said they were powerless to speed up and the matter was out of their hands, it took more than six months after his arrest before Farrant was flown back to the UK from Nice on the 31st of January 1997. He came back on an Air France flight to Southampton Airport with four officers from Hampshire, including Detective Superintendent David Hanna. Seven other passengers on the plane disembarked first, before Farrant, handcuffed to one of the detectives, Detective Constable Blair Nixon, was led down the aircraft steps and to an unmarked police car which was waiting on the runway. Within two hours of his arrival back in the UK, he had appeared in court to be charged with both offences of the attempted murder of Anne Fiddler and the murder of Glenda Hoskins and was then taken to Winchester Prison to await trial. Farrant came to trial just over six months later when on the 17th of January 1998 he appeared at Winchester Crown Court before presiding Mr Justice Butterfield and pleaded not guilty to the attempted murder of Anne Fiddler and the murder of Glenda Hoskins. Opening the case for the Crown, Jeremy Gibbons Casey told the jury that Anne and Glenda were two very different women with two very different lives, saying, perhaps quite cruelly, one was a prostitute and one an accountant. One lived in a modest terraced house in Eastleigh, the other a waterside home. Mr Gibbons said that Anne was found in the kitchen of her home in Eastleigh after she had been beaten by Farrant with murder in his heart, causing massive head injuries and necessitating her to have received a blood transfusion of nine pints, even having to have part of her brain removed. Describing what had happened to Anne, Mr Gibbons told of how her husband Brett returned home on the 27th of December 1995 to find it in darkness. He went into the kitchen and turned on the light, only to find Anne in a crumpled heap on the kitchen floor, blood, vomit and broken glass everywhere, saying. He saw a human being slumped in a pool of blood against the tumble dryer, but he could not tell who it was. On the floor just in front of the cupboards were the remains of a bottle, one of the bottles of which the remains of three were found in the kitchen. If this defendant had left Mrs Fiddler lying in that kitchen on her back rather than being slumped against the tumble dryer, she probably would have died. Mr Gibbons then showed the jury photos of the items found in the kitchen. One showed the base of an iron with its case and handle missing, which he described were later found in a carrier bag in a nearby bin. Also in the carrier bag was a knife and the necks of the three bottles used to batter her, with Farrant's palm prints being found on each. Blood which matched his DNA profile was also found on one of the kitchen taps at Mrs Fiddler's house, although none of it was discovered until after he had killed Glenda six weeks later. Giving evidence, Anne Fiddler's husband Brett admitted in court to having had an affair, to share in a bed with a woman as friends, as he claimed, 10 days before the attack, and that his gym business, the power factory, was in debt at the time. But he denied owing any money to his wife, or to attacking her, as was suggested by the defence. 
Now, Brett had been rapidly ruled out of the inquiry, of course, but this line of questioning stemmed from following Anne awakening from her coma after 15 days. Brett had called her at the Victoria House Rehabilitation Centre, where she was recovering, and she had said to him, You tried to kill me, didn't you? Now, neurosurgeons had told Anne that she may never be able to distinguish between genuine memories and fantasy. But it was Brett's reply to this that led to Farrant's defence barrister bringing this up. Richard Camden Pratt Casey revealed details of the phone call to the court and asked Mr Fiddler, Do you remember her asking you, you tried to kill me, didn't you? And you replied, yes I did, he said. Did you not say, yes I did, look at the trouble you caused me. Mr Fiddler said he didn't recall such a reply. But if he'd made it, then, I quote, it would have been through shock at being accused. I definitely would not have said, yes, that is stupid. Asked about his feelings towards her work as an escort, Mr Fiddler replied, We discussed it on a small basis, but not on a large basis. It was her business, and I had to accept that. Asked what services she performed apart from sex, he replied, Bits and bobs, she whipped people and things like that. He added simply, it wasn't me. I know it looked bad at the time, but I was not responsible. Farrant, giving evidence, claimed that Anne had been attacked by someone else. He admitted he'd been at Anne's previously, he couldn't deny the forensic evidence, but said that he'd found her when he called at her home for sex and had then run away in a panic after seeing her lying there through the window. Refuting this, Mr Gibbons said, You picked up a whole bottle and smashed it over Mrs Fiddler's head. No, you are completely wrong. Isn't it a fact that you went there and fell out very badly with Mrs Fiddler? I suggest you asked her to do something she didn't want to do. No. I suggest you wanted something she didn't want and you lost your temper. If I'd wanted something more, I could have paid for it. Farron could not answer when it was put to him that his palm print was found on bottlenecks and the iron casing used to batter Anne, why his blood was found on a tap at her home, and on the panties belonging to her that had been found discarded, and nor when one crucial oversight that shot his story further to pieces was pointed out to him that there were internal shutters on Anne's kitchen windows which were closed, which meant that he couldn't have seen her through the window. On the murder of Glenda Hoskins, Mr Gibbons described to the court the events of the day and how Katie had discovered her body in the loft and how an examination of Mrs Hoskins' body suggested she'd been pulled sharply by the ankles while in the bath. Then something was held over her mouth while she was suffocated underwater. Her hair was still wet and bedraggled when she was found by Katie some hours later. Semen was found on Glenda's body which matched Farrant's DNA and his fingerprints were also found near her naked body. Scientists said the chance of DNA at both scenes coming from someone unrelated was 1 in 15 million. Mr Gibbons said, the defendant was in possession of items belonging to Mrs Hoskins within hours of her being killed, 
and we also submit that, that on the evidence, both these crimes were premeditated. The prosecution suggested that Farrant, obsessed with Glenda and furious at her rejection of him, had written out a series of notes that he would force her to read and then enact. Mr Gibbons claimed that after Glenda's death, scientists using ESDA testing were able to discover from impressions on a notebook found in Farrant's flat some of the notes that had been written in it originally, notes which in part read, You know why I'm here. You will turn and face me, get completely undressed, looking into my eyes, and say, Use my body for your pleasure. Now the next line had the words, Hands on your hips and legs wide, as well as the letters, RT, which it was claimed could have formed the word apart. It went on. Read this and take it very seriously. It is not a joke. Do not ask any questions or say anything and then make your choice. Do not say or do anything other than what I instruct you to do or say. Another note, which Mr. Gibbons said was intended for Mrs. Hoskins to read before her death, read in part. Take these instructions to be very serious. Fuck me about or refuse to do anything I ask and you'll be tied up and gagged. I will not repeat myself. You will not get a second chance. If I have to use violence to get what I want, I will. It will make no difference to me. I am going to get what I want either way. The choice is yours. Now this is what you're going to do. Face me and get completely undressed, then come and give me a kiss. You know how I like it. Be good and willing to me, and you will come to no harm. I will be gentle, but remember, you must show willing and be responsive. Chilling that, eh? Though the originals of the notes were never found, Mr Gibbons alleged that these letters were not merely some private fantasy in Farrant's living room. They were written to someone Farrant knew well. He said, We submit, when you look at the big picture, the way the relationship had so recently soured, these documents were written for her to read and for her to obey. In his evidence, Farrant told the court that Glenda liked rough sex and to act out fantasies, claiming that they'd made love in a car, in a field, and in hotels where she would pretend to be a chambermaid. Other times, he said, she would turn up at his flat pretending to be a stranger and he would hand her a note before they had sex. Obviously a calculated effort to explain away the discovery on the notepad in his flat. Glenda would write to him lots too, as we've heard, and one such letter read to the court said, The bruises you gave me are all gone now, and I sincerely hope that the mark I gave you was gone. What a naughty, naughty girl I was. Speaking then about the day she died, Farrant said, We started kissing and caressing and I started to undo her clothes. As we went upstairs, we were making love on the stairs. I asked Glenda to dress up, which was not unusual. She would put on a short skirt, stockings and a see-through blouse. The lounge has huge windows and we sometimes used to make love in front of that. Then we went into the bedroom and had sex. 
He explained how they had then had a bath together, continuing. We started to soak and wash each other and tried to have sex. I got out first and started to dry myself and she followed 10 or 15 seconds after me. She was standing next to me and tried to snatch the towel off me. I was finishing drying myself and she was pulling the towel. I suddenly let go of it and pushed her at the same time. I went back to the bedroom to get changed and I heard a crash and a bang. It worried me, but I carried on to the bedroom. I was expecting a mouthful of abuse about pushing her. When I went back to the bathroom, I thought she was giving me the silent treatment. I saw Glenda lying in the bath on her back. At first, I thought she was rinsing her hair, and then I realised she'd gone underwater. I went to pull her out, grabbing her shoulders. He claimed he gave her the kiss of life, but couldn't revive her, saying, I didn't think to ring for a doctor, because I knew she was dead. Panicking, he had then fled in her car, but claimed he returned to the house later, thinking, This hasn't really happened. He continued, I was worried about the children coming home and finding her. I hid her upstairs in the attic and put a carpet over her. He maintained that Glenda's death was an accident, saying he'd intended to tell someone later what he'd done, but he had panicked. There was applause from the public gallery on Thursday the 29th of January 1997, when after only a short deliberation, the jury saw through Farrant's lies and convicted him unanimously on both charges. It was only then that members of the jury were told that Farrant had committed the offences within weeks of being released from jail after serving seven years of a 12-year sentence for rape. He had even also told a fellow prisoner that he aimed to kill Glenda, but this was not disclosed at trial because then the rape conviction would have to be disclosed to the jury. Sentencing Farrant to life imprisonment for the murder and 18 years to be served concurrently for the attempted murder of Anne Fiddler, Mr Justice Butterfield said, Whether you attacked Mrs Fiddler because she refused to agree to some perverted sexual demand you made, or to achieve sadistic pleasure from what you did, I don't know. But the attack when it came was one of unparalleled ferocity. You used no less than five weapons on her, and you persisted in your merciless assault until you had reduced her to a bloodied, unrecognisable heap. You have shown not a shred of remorse, compassion or pity, either for the victims or for the motherless children of Glenda Hoskins. Of Glenda's murder, the judge said, It was a ruthless, callous, evil act committed by a highly dangerous man. This murder was so terrible, and you are so dangerous, that in your case, the sentence of life should mean just that. You should never be released. You have devastated the lives of many people. The opportunity to do so again should not be allowed to you. Farrant rocked on his feet, then kicked the dock but otherwise showed no emotion and said nothing in response. He had stared fixatedly at Katie, her brothers David and Ian, and their father, who had come into the court from the public gallery as the sentence was handed down, and they held his gaze, contemptuously, 
until he looked away and was then taken away to begin his sentence. After the trial ended, Farrant's own family issued a statement expressing sympathy with the relatives of his victims, saying, It is for most decent people almost impossible to comprehend that one human being can cause the grief and pain to so many people that Victor Farrant has. Under the British justice system, we trust that Victor will never again be free to inflict his evil, savage deeds on anyone. Close family then. After the sentencing, Katie Hoskins tearfully said, It is the best thing they could have done, but it doesn't take away what has happened. Now, I just feel relieved and very sick. I just felt totally sick seeing him eye to eye, but that is what we wanted. We wanted to sit there. He's pure evil, and it is a disgrace that he serves such a short sentence for rape, and they let him out early to go on home leave. It seems incredible he was allowed to slip back into society. They should have thrown away the key. Hanging's too good for him. Farron's is pure evil. He didn't give a damn about killing my mother. Glenda's husband, Tony Hoskins, said of Farrant, If ever there was a case for locking someone up and throwing away the key, then he's it. He's a total psychopath. But what makes him particularly dangerous is that he is so apparently normal. He's so plausible and seems to be able to take people in so easily. He has to be locked up and never let out. The British justice system let my wife down. Now, the children and I have a deep, intense, burning hatred for Farrant. There was something about him the children just didn't like or trust. They all thought he was a bit slimy. Children sometimes have a better perception of what people are like inside than adults have. Speaking again about Farrant, Katie said, He was extremely arrogant and could never admit he was wrong. He liked to present himself as a man of the world. When we played Trivial Pursuit, he would always get the answers wrong, but used to say the cards had been incorrectly printed. It was pathetic. Her elder brother Ian added, By Christmas, Mum wanted to end the relationship, but he rang her constantly. Mum was an independent woman who ran her own accountancy business. Farrant couldn't handle a woman with her own life who rejected him. We never thought he was that evil. We knew he was being possessive and would not take no for an answer. I thought he may have been round and then gone off and killed himself or something, but we never thought that he was a psychopath. Now Glenda's children, in the months following her murder and the trial, used their grief over their mother to try and make her proud as a testament to her memory, and each were to go on to be massively successful academically, gaining consistently high grades. Tony said shortly after the trial, I'm terribly proud of them all. It would have been easy for them to use what happened as an excuse not to sit exams or to be slack, but instead, they worked twice as hard. Glenda always stressed the importance of education. She would have been proud too. I'm sure that she would have been. Anne and Brett Fiddler never lived together after the attack and were divorced following her slow recovery. In an interview given after Farrant was imprisoned for life, Anne, 
living alone at a secret address in the home counties, told how she was determined to rebuild her life in spite of the debilitating injuries Farrant had left her with. By two years later, she was left with no sense of taste or smell, poor vision, and was only able to eat mashed up food because her jaw had been dislocated. Her short-term memory was poor, and she was permanently at risk of epilepsy, unable to run, drive a car, or go on a train or plane, because the change in air pressure in rail tunnels or the air could be fatal to her. Anne had resigned herself to the fact that she would likely never work again, or to be able to have the children she longed for, for she doubted whether she would ever remarry, saying, It would be lovely to have a new partner. I'm sometimes lonely, and even though I have to believe that lightning could not strike in the same place twice, I am weary of men. My life has been taken away from me, but I try not to be bitter. I have to keep looking ahead and tell myself I'm lucky to be alive. I can't sit around weeping silently for hours. If I did that, that would mean my attacker had won. I have to cope with this and deal with it on my own. Sometimes I feel a little scared, but then I think, don't be so pathetic. But most of all, I feel desperately sorry for the other women he's attacked. They may not be as strong as me. And of course, I feel desperately sorry for the family of the woman he murdered. Anne had blanked out the memory of the monster who answered her advert. Indeed, she recalled nothing of the attack and neurosurgeons told her her memories may never come back. But the horror of his frenzied attack will live with her for the rest of her life. Anne said, I wish we lived in Saudi Arabia where men are beheaded for murder. I would be happy to hold the sword. Now in March 2003, she received a £167,000 compensation award from the Criminal Injuries Compensation Board, which was a significant drop from the £600,000 that she had claimed, and which Anne was distressed at, admitting after the hearing that there'd been a feeling of disappointment at the award. She said, It was a big claim whittled down to very little because of deductions. The award has left me with problems financially for the rest of my life, but I cannot blame the board for this. She was too distressed to discuss the matter further. Now, how do you quantify how much is to be awarded in cases like this, with life-changing injuries such as Anne had suffered? It's a difficult one, for such an amount awarded sounds life-changing to you and I, but of course, we haven't received those kind of injuries, have we? Now, incidentally, there is no record of any compensation received by the family of Glenda Hoskins, though, of course, no amount of money could compensate for such a loss that they'd suffered, could it? The beast responsible, Victor Farrant, had a deadly flaw in his makeup, his inability to handle rejection. As long as women went along with his wishes, everything was fine, but if they refused the demands of his voracious appetite for sex, or, worse still, spurned him completely, he became vicious. Even though Glenda had finished with him, he kept turning up at her door and phoning her. Then his twisted mind decided that if she rejected him, no one else would have her. 
It was rejection of Farron that also triggered Anne Fiddler's ordeal, police believe. He wanted perverted sex and was turned down, though somehow he had persuaded her to dress up ready for it. Now there was criticism levelled at just how Farrant managed to escape justice long enough to flee for months because the two police forces which investigated him didn't at the time use the same fingerprint recording system. Police in Hampshire investigating the attack on Anne couldn't match the discovered prints to him even though Farrant's prints were on Cambridge's database and on Sussex Police's records where he'd raped a woman almost a decade before as each force used different systems for registering fingerprints. Today that's been rectified and fingerprint images obtained from people who've been arrested for a recordable offence within any UK jurisdiction, as well as unidentified finger marks obtained from any scenes of crime, are kept on the UK National 10 Print Collection, which Ident1 comprises part of the Forensic Information Databases Service. Farrant had also cut his hand on one of the balls leaving enough blood for a DNA profile to be raised. But of course, no match was found because when he first went to jail in 1988, police were not allowed to take DNA samples from inmates and he'd been released before the introduction of the National DNA Database. He had also avoided the laws on the monitoring of sex offenders because his rape conviction in the 1980s came before the October 1992 changes to the Criminal Justice Act, and this is despite him having refused any aspect of rehabilitation whilst in prison for rape. Detective Superintendent Hannah said this was a matter of grave concern, continuing, Had he done so, he could have been released on licence and been made subject of a strict monitoring regime by the probation service. By refusing any aspect of rehabilitation, Farrant circumvented the system and the probation service had no statutory authority to monitor him when he was released automatically on completing two-thirds of his sentence, despite the fact that he was widely considered still to be a danger to women. Now it's a familiar story this, with several mistakes being made, and that's clear a mistake, isn't it? You do not release someone who you think, oh, he's still a danger to women, let's let you out, make him serve the full sentence, just an idea. Several mistakes being made that resulted in such horror and loss for so many. Now almost 74 years old, Victor Farrant remains in a maximum security prison to this day, and although he's not on the known list of reported whole-life tariff prisoners, he is unlikely ever to be released, deservedly so. Largely a forgotten figure now, though I would imagine only his age and infirmity preventing him from being the dangerous force he once was. The only time since his imprisonment he's come to attention in the press is back in January 2010, when it was reported that Farrant enjoys cooking up chicken curries at HMP Wakefield, Monster Mansion itself, in West Yorkshire, where he's being held with another budding chef. His culinary partner? Levi Belfield, a monster who I'm sure needs no introduction. A spokesperson revealed. Over Christmas, they cooked curries in the wing's kitchen and scoffed them. Belfield boasts that he's the curry king of Wakefield.
That's one name for him. I could think of a few better fitting for him, as I'm sure you can too. A terrible tale this one, isn't it, eh? I would love, as always, hearing your thoughts and feedback on the tale I've brought in Manhunt, which you can do so in the episode thread that's up in the show's Facebook discussion group now, or through any of the show's social media links if you want to. Always good to catch me wherever. With that, I shall shut up and wrap up now then, and it's on to the next tale out of the True Crime Enthusiast bag. I thank you kindly for joining me in the MOG today. It always means the world that you do. And all that remains for me to say is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the True Crime Enthusiast, wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon when I'm back with another tale. Take care all, stay safe, and goodbye for now.